helping to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. This is the Constitution Study on the America Out Loud Network with your host, Paul Engel. For decades, I've watched as our so-called judicial system has trampled the rights of the American citizen. However, the last couple of years, there have been rays of hope. Last year at the Supreme Court, it was the Dobbs and Boston flag decisions. This year, we have the Harvard 303 Creative and the U.S. Postal Service decision. And let's not forget the federal judge who told Biden to stop illegally forgiving student loans. While many people have decried the courts following the law rather than their political agenda, these decisions are good. One might even see these decisions as a, a change in our judicial system toward actually following the Constitution. Then again, the light we see may not be the sacred fire of liberty, but the train of future judicial tyranny. Well, hello there, everyday Americans. Paul Engel here with the Constitution Study. This is where we read and study the Constitution teach the rising generation to be free. I'm so glad you could join me today as we look at this ray of hope and you know, try to decipher, is this liberty or an oncoming destruction? You know, I mentioned the, the U.S. Postal Service decision. It's actually Groff versus DeJoy Postmaster General. And there's some in detailed information I need to get into that I think you'll find um, helpful. This is actually from an article I wrote on that specific opinion. Judicial system today works like a bad case of the game telephone. You probably remember that game from grammar school. The teacher would whisper something into one child's ear, who would then whisper it into the next child's ear, and on and on, until the message got all the way around the room. Then the teacher would compare what they had whispered into the first child's ear with what the last child heard, and it would be completely different. This child's game shows the dangers of what I call a compounding replication error. The idea that small errors that occur when something like a message is replicated, compounded with each new replica until the original message is lost. This is how our judicial system works today, often with disastrous effects. In the case of Groff versus DeJoy, Postmaster General, most people see a win for religious liberty. I, however, see another generation of a compounding replication error in judicial opinion that, while granting the correct outcome today, lays the groundwork for the destruction of our rights and the rule of law tomorrow. On its face, the case of Groff versus DeJoy Postmaster General seems quite simple. Can the United States Postal Service punish an employee for refusing to work on Sundays for religious reasons? Petitioner Gerald Groff is an evangelical Christian who believes for religious reasons that Sunday should be devoted to worship and rest. In 2012, Groff took a mail delivery job with the United States Postal Service. Groff's position generally did not involve Sunday work, but that changed after the U.S. Postal Service agreed to begin facilitating Sunday deliveries for Amazon. Groff received progressive discipline for failing to work on Sundays, and he eventually resigned. This seems simple enough. Mr. Groff took a mail delivery job with the U.S. Postal Service, USPS, which did not generally involve working on Sundays. When the USPS signed an agreement with Amazon, which included Sunday delivery, Mr. Groff moved to another station, a more rural one, that did not offer Sunday deliveries. When that station began to offer Sunday deliveries, Mr. Groff refused to work those days, forcing the U.S. Postal Service to redistribute his work to other employees. 
This led to progressively increased discipline, which caused Mr. Groff to resign and file suit. Groff sued under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, asserting that the U.S. Postal Service could have accommodated his Sunday Sabbath practice without undue hardship on the conduct of the U.S. Postal Service's business. The district court granted summary judgment to USPS. The Third Circuit affirmed based on this court's decision in Transworld Airlines, Inc. versus Hardison, which it construed to mean that requiring an employer to bear more than a de minimis cost to provide a religious accommodation is an undue hardship. The Third Circuit found the de minimis cost standard met here, concluding that exempting Garoff from Sunday work had imposed on his co-workers, disrupted the workplace and workflow, and diminished employee morale. Both the district and circuit courts sided with the U.S. Postal Service, concluding that they only had to show a de minimis, Latin for minimum of minimum importance. They only had to show a de minimis cost to be able to deny a religious exemption. These courts came to this decision based on a previous decision called Transworld Airline Inc. versus Hardison. This is where we pick up our game of judicial telephone. Let's start where all legal cases should start, with the law. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibited discrimination in public places, provided for the integration of schools and other public facilities, and made employment discrimination illegal. Title VII, dealing with employment discrimination, was added to the U.S. Code under Title 42, Sections 2000E through 2000E17. Within that law, we find, it shall be unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation, terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. Later, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission added regulations requiring that employers make a reasonable accommodation for religious practice. After an employee or prospective employee notifies the employer or labor organization of his or her need for a religious exemption, the employer or labor organization has an obligation to reasonably accommodate the individual's religious practice. A refusal to accommodate is justified only when an employer or labor organization can demonstrate that an undue hardship would in fact result from each available alternative method of accommodation. First, we need to note that the regulation is 29 CFR section 1605.2C1, not 1605.1, as the court claims in the opinion syllabus. This religious accommodation requirement was eventually codified in the U.S. Code under section 2000EJ. The term religion includes all aspects of religious observance and practice, as well as belief, unless an employer demonstrates that he is unable to reasonably accommodate to an employee's or prospective employee's religious observation or practice without undue hardship on the conduct of the employer's business. The, the law quite clearly states that employers cannot discriminate against an individual because of their religious observance and practice unless they can show doing so would be an undue hardship on their business. What is an undue hardship? Well, Merriam-Webster's online dictionary defines undue as exceeding or violating propriety or fitness, in other words, excessive, and hardship as something that causes or entails suffering or privation. In other words, employers must make accommodation for religious practices unless it would cause excessive suffering or privation. However, Mr. Groff's case, the Third Circuit, did not base their decision on the law, but on their interpretation of a previous case, Transworld Airlines, Inc. versus Harrison. The Supreme Court noted the error in using this precedent in their decision. 
Instead, the court's opinion stated that the principal issue on which TWA and the union came to this court was whether Title VII requires an employer and a union who have agreed on a seniority system to deprive senior employees of their seniority status in order to accommodate a junior employee's religious practice. The court held that Title VII imposed no such requirement. But the court's opinion in Hardison contained this oft-quoted sentence. To require TWA to bear more than a de minimis cost in order to give Hardison Saturdays off is an undue hardship. Although many lower courts later viewed this line as the authoritative interpretation of the statutory term, undue hardship, the context renders this reading doubtful. In response to Justice Marshall's dissent, the court described the governing standard quite differently, stating three times that an accommodation is not required unless it entails substantial cost or expenditures. Do you see how judicial telephone is so dangerous to our rights and the rule of law? How many lower court decisions were made on the faulty reasoning found in Hardison? How would Mr. Groff's case have been decided if this court had not gone to the text of the law? Well, back to the case opinion. To determine what an employer must prove to defend a denial of religious accommodation under Title VII, the court begins with Title VII's text. The statutory term hardship refers to, at minimum, something hard to bear and suggests something more severe than a mere burden. If Title VII said only that an employer need not be made to suffer a hardship, an employer could escape liability simply by showing that an accommodation would pose some sort of a additional cost. Adding the modifier undo means that the requisite burden or adversity must rise to an excessive or unjustifiable level. Understood in this way, undue hardship means something very different from a burden that is merely more than a de minimis, i.e. very small or trifling. The ordinary meaning of undue hardship thus points toward a standard closer to Hardison's reference to substantial additional cost or substantial expenditures. By now, you may be thinking, great, Paul, the circuit court got it wrong, but at least the Supreme Court came to the right conclusion because they went back to the law. If that's what you were thinking, uh, you're wrong. You see, the Hardison decision was based on a previous decision, Dewey versus Reynolds Metal Company, where we find this is an action arising under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 42 U.S.C. Section 2000E, which provides, among other things, for relief against religious discrimination in employment. Okay, Paul, so what's wrong with Dewey? Well, Dewey, which is the first case I found regarding Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, does not appear to have considered whether or not Title VII was even constitutional. Because an application of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 42 U.S.C. Section 2000E, will permit the court to decide the case, it is not necessary to reach the question of whether plaintiff's constitutional rights have been violated. See, the Dewey Court recognized that the Constitution, either directly or indirectly, had to be considered, but not because the Constitution said so, but because another court had. An agreement which violates a provision of the federal Constitution or of a constitutional federal statute, or which cannot be performed without violating such a provision, is illegal and void. This, by the way, is Irwitt versus Blue Jacket. Because of these views, the Dewey Court never appeared to question whether or not Title VII, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, violated the Constitution of the United States in the first place, which would have made the law void. This despite the fact that the court pointed out the unconstitutional nature of the law in their opinion. In relation to Sherbet, one might question its relevance, since in that case, 
there was state action, while in the instant case there is only private action. That distinction would be important if this opinion were dealing with whether a defendant's overtime rule is unconstitutional. But the issue before the court is whether the defendant has violated a federal statute, a statute which restricts the activities of private employers and does not require state action. The importance of serving to this analysis is not its holding on constitutionality, but its definition of discrimination, a definition which is equally valid whether employed to measure private or state action. Now, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act restricted the activities of private employers, which is not a power delegated to the United States by its constitution. The term employer means a person engaged in an industry affecting commerce who has 15 or more employees for each working day in each of 20 or more calendar weeks in the current or preceding calendar year and any agent of such person. But Congress has not granted the power to regulate commerce. Under Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution, Congress has the power only to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Furthermore, Title VII does not regulate commerce. It regulates employment. Now, while it's assumed that Congress can regulate employment within the federal government, they have not been delegated any power to regulate employment outside of that sphere. This means Title VII violates the Tenth Amendment. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Since Title VII is a U.S. law not made pursuant to the Constitution, it is not the supreme law of the land, at least according to the Supremacy Clause. This Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the constitutional laws of any state to the contrary notwithstanding. And since the judges in every state are bound to the supreme law, including those of the Supreme Court who take an oath to support the Constitution, they should have found Title VII unconstitutional and therefore void. There is one good thing found in this mess, and that's the actual decision. You see, the U.S. Postal Service is part of the federal government. Its very existence came from Congress and therefore is subject to the First Amendment, which reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The United States Postal Service, an entity created by Congress, is barred from prohibiting the free exercise of religion, including observing the Sabbath. Held, Title VII requires an employer that denies a religious accommodation to show that the burden of granting an accommodation will result in a substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of its particular business. So while the Supreme Court got it wrong, the outcome for Mr. Groff is correct. The judgment of the Court of Appeals is vacated, and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. When I was young, my mother used to say, two wrongs don't make a right. Well, that's true for this case. With everyone focused on the court deciding in Mr. Groff's favor, lost are the numerous wrongs that brought them to it. You may be asking, Paul, how can you be upset with a win for religious liberty? The answer is simple, because it depends solely on the largesse of nine black-robed oligarchs, and what the oligarchs give, the oligarchs can take away. This decision is founded on nothing but a towering house of cards waiting for the slightest breeze to blow it down. What happens when the next judge or justice arbitrarily decides that an employee's Sunday off is an undue hardship? Are you willing to bet your financial future, not to mention your rights, and how burdensome some judge finds your accommodation? We used to have courts of justice. 
then we had courts of law, but now we are saddled with courts of opinions. How can we build a just and stable justice system on such shifting sands? And that really is the the train I'm worried about in this metaphor, right? It's it's not that I'm so much upset with the actual outcome of the case, but the fact that it's based on such unconstitutional logic that it could just as easily have gone the other way. And that shifting sand is what we're seeing shift. We're not seeing these these opinions being built on the solid rock of the Constitution, but on just a different set of judges' opinions. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is dangerous. Now, I have to take a break before we go on. I do want to remind you to head, please head to the website, constitutionstudy.com. You can join one of my mailing lists. Uh, you know, you can ask a question. I'm still looking for questions. I love questions. Or you can uh, check out what else we're working on here at the Constitution Study, like our Patriots program. While you're surfing around, hey, do you have the problem at the end of the day like I do, where you just kind of get fuzzy and you have a hard time concentrating? Well, you can boost your short-term focus and your long-term brain power with Healthy Cells Focus and Recall Vitamins. That's right. They're just vitamins. It's not full of sugar and caffeine that, give, that you see in energy drinks and energy shots. These are just vitamins, and they work really, really well. Now, since you're a listener to America Out Loud, you can get 25% off your first order. All you have to do is go to americaoutloud.shop, find the uh, Healthy Cell card, click on it, and you'll get all the instructions you need. Basically, you need to use the code OUTLOUD at checkout. So go to healthycell.com, put your card together, use the code OUTLOUD at checkout. It lets them know that you listen to America Out Loud. And as a thank you, you get 25% off your first order. These days, every time you turn on the news, it seems like there's a new threat to your health. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. These physician-formulated gels come in a small gel pack. Tear off the top and shoot it down, or mix it in water. Boost your immunity. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. 
Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You rejoined the Constitution study. We're talking about these rays of hopes coming out of our judicial branch, or are they just an oncoming train of tyranny? Now, I talked about the U.S. Postal Service case because everybody's seeing this as, as just rays of hope and sunshine and everything's great, not really realizing that it's built on a house of cards that could fall literally at any moment. It, it truly was in the, the hands of not the law, but the deciders. And it's this the vagaries of the judicial system that uh, often give at least give me the most agita. Uh, two crimes exactly the same could be con- treated completely different based on, well, which judge hears the case. Now, I don't know about you, but I wasn't terribly surprised when the Department of Justice offered Hunter Biden a sweetheart deal. That's kind of the way things work, right? Human nature is to... Um, to well to feather your own bed to to find ways of making friends that can help you in the future and our judicial system since it is not anchored in the constitution anymore yeah i, I said that right our our judicial system is no longer answered or no longer anchored in the constitution of the united states why do i say that well because i've asked lawyers for years now and so far i've only had one lawyer in all those years tell me that when they were in law school they actually studied the language of the constitution rather than simply studying the opinions of judges and we've drifted so far from the actual language of the constitution our judicial system is actually confused apparently by the constitution so we end up with this case of you have a a the the son of a high profile politician uh man who spent almost was almost 50 years in the senate uh eight years as vice president he's now uh into his third year as president it's not surprising that he might get a deal right that's i thought the deal was a bit over the top when you consider that uh you know felony tax evasion was dropped down to misdemeanor and the gun charge the the um falsely filling out a federal form uh, when purchasing a firearm, well, that was basically going to be brushed aside if uh, if Hunter Biden could keep his nose clean, literally. Well, interesting facts have came up last week, and I hope you've noticed it. Uh, I've seen lots of uh, headlines about the the Hunter Biden sweetheart deal collapsing, falling apart. Uh, let, let's back up a little bit and see if we can get a little information now, again. I'm not up to the latest. Uh, you know, there may be new information that has come out that I haven't gotten to yet. But the way I, what I've found so far is basically there was a disagreement between the prosecutors and Mr. Biden's attorneys. You see, Mr. Biden's attorneys thought that the plea deal would end the investigation into Hunter Biden's potential other crimes, while uh, the Department of Justice said, no, no, we, we still have ongoing investigations. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but as I understand it, it's not that uncommon for plea deals to fall apart. You know, you know but you'd think, boy, you'd think in a deal like this, such a high-profile case, where you're dealing with the, the son of the sitting president of the United States, uh, the DOJ would have dotted their I's and crossed their T's and gotten everything right before going to the judge. Well, apparently not. So uh, apparently while they were in court discussing uh, the, the details, the prosecutor and the defense team, about the structure of the agreement, um, it was obvious that there was some miscommunication. The judge, contrary to popular belief, it's not that the, the deal is gone, 
But the judge has said, okay, no, I cannot accept this deal in its current form. They've got to work out those details, dot those I's, cross those T's. In the meantime, uh, Mr. Biden has pled not guilty. So what we're seeing is less uh, courtroom drama and more, I don't know, just just courtroom stuff. You know, it, it's not the end. Hunter Biden isn't going to jail. He may not even go to court. They may come back with the deal with all the details worked out so that it can be accept, accepted. Um, but it's an, to me, it's an interesting look at just how uh, convoluted our judicial system has gotten. You know, it's funny. They, they always tell us that ignorance of the law is no excuse, but it appears that ignorance of the laws is is actually quite commonplace. Well, what do you expect with a, a legal code? I don't know how long our legal code is with all the extra fluff that's not law that's written into it. It's insane. But for all everybody who's out there cheering that the the deal the the Hunter Biden's deal fell apart, it's not quite as bad for Mr. Biden as you may have been led to believe. It's not quite as bad for the DOJ either. Uh, all it really means is that. They got to go through this again. I think they got 30 days to come back and work out the details of this deal, present it back to the judge. And if they got everything right, then the deal will go through and he'll get his his sweetheart deal. Um, then again, maybe not. Maybe they can't work out the details. And gee, wouldn't it be interesting if we actually went to trial and we actually had people under oath testifying about what was going on? Maybe we could learn a bit more about some of the other things that have been going on. Um, you know, like the cocaine in the White House and who knows, you never know, you know, I, I know attorneys are not supposed to ask questions they don't know the answer to, but you never know what bits of information would pop up if we actually went to trial. So we're still working on that. Now, of course, Hunter Biden is a high profile figure, figure because of his father, who is the current sitting president of the United States. So it's not surprising that this came up in the, the White House press briefing and well, current Jean-Pierre uh, dealt with it. She said, um, the president, the first lady love and the, love their son and they support him as he continues to rebuild his life. Well, that's nice. And, and uh, trust me as a father myself, I understand loving a child, supporting them as they're trying to rebuild their life. Absolutely. Um, that she also mentioned that this was a, a private matter, which I guess the charges themselves are private matters because they they only deal with actions by hunter not the uh, uh the money for the big guy shall we say and that's being handled independently by the justice department well that should be wrong um it should be being handled by the judiciary now yes the justice department is prosecuting cuz that's their job and that brings up an interesting situation cuz you have a prosecutor with a conflict of interest ultimately the justice department is part of the executive branch all executive power is vested in the president, which means ultimately anybody in the Justice Department works for the president of the United States, who's the father of the defendant, which means you really have to put in some safeguards to avoid any undue influence. I don't know that you could put in sufficient safeguards, because even if uh, President Biden said nothing, did nothing, issued no orders, You've got to know that the people in the department know who Hunter Biden is and are going to possibly feel some that uh, uh, 
actually treating them like they would treat anybody else might be a, what, what we used to refer to as a, a career-limiting exercise. But again, we'll see. But there's another important point we need to understand. So it was Alexander Hamilton that said the courts and the federal government have neither force nor will, but only judgment, and are dependent on the executive branch even for the efficacy of their decisions. The, the courts cannot do. They decide, but they cannot do. Now, there was an interesting interchange between Representative Getz and uh, uh, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas involving uh, a back and forth. There was a question about how many people that uh, the courts have said, uh, no, your asylum is denied, you need to go home. How many has the the department actually deported, actually removed from the country? And uh, in this, there was, an, there was a piece I want to focus on. Because here's what I'm, I'm sort of getting and what your non-responsiveness is demonstrating. The Mayorkas doctrine is this. If you show up at the border and get released into the country, if you don't commit a specific aggravated felony, which by the way, doesn't include a lot of assault and battery, doesn't include a lot of bad domestic violence, but if you're not one of the people who commit those crimes, you get to stay forever. Is, is that a fair characterization of your doctrine? No, that is false. Then tell me how many you're sending home. No, that is false. Okay, well, they, but you don't know the number of how many you've sent home. Okay, so let's understand this political kabuki theater we're going through here. See, Getz is pretending to ask important questions, and Mayorkas is doing everything he can to avoid actually answering the question. Now, I say Getz's is, is, questions are more political than actual policy, and I should say they're partisan rather than policy. He refers to this as the Mayorkas Doctrine. Right? That's, first of all, it's inflammatory, but second of all, it's not true. See, Mayorkas is a servant. He works at the behest of the President of the United States. So if anything, this is the Biden doctrine, not the Mayorkas doctrine. Because if Biden wanted to enforce the law, as he's legally required to do, he would have told Mayorkas to do things differently and at least have some answers to what I might find, what I find to be interesting questions. How many people having, uh, uh, you know, entered this country illegally are actually other than the criminals, how many of them are actually being removed? It, to me, that would be a, a question of of how effective the um, the application of federal law is in this situation. But again, we're playing kabuki theater. Gets knows he's not going to get an answer for this. It's as much a show as anything else. But Gets came up with another question that you might find interesting. Two point. I'm sorry. One point two million people today have been through your entire process. Right? They've been through what you call a removal proceeding is just an amnesty dance. Because after the 1.2 million people get an order from the judge saying that they don't have a basis to be here, you still don't remove them. Like, what's your plan to remove those people? Congressman, that is false. Okay, wh how many of them then? Just Cong give me the number. Congressman, in this country, in this country, there are between 11 and 12 million Right, but I'm asking about a subset that you won't send home. And the reason you're smirking about it, and the reason you won't answer my question, is because everybody gets the joke. It reminds me of an old Soviet Union joke, you know. They pretend to pay us, we pretend to work. See, the, the courts can't actually physically remove somebody, even though a judge issues an order of deportation. It is up to the executive branch to do it. They execute the law. 
and the uh, are they doing it or not? How can you tell? Now, the the, the fact is, if I if I look at Mayorkas's testimony, he's doing everything he can to avoid actually answering the question. Does that mean that the answer to the question is bad? Not necessarily, but probably. Probably the answer is really, really, really bad. But we don't know because he won't answer the question. So here we have a really interesting um, dance between the three branches of government. Congress passed a law that says to enter this country legally, you have to do A, B, C, D, and E. Uh, you have people who have not been, have not followed that. They've broken that law. They've been apprehended. They've had their due process. They've had their day in court. They uh, have been ordered to be removed. Um, my guess is most of them have not been removed, although I don't have proof because we haven't been able to get answers. And now you have the legislative branch going, wait a second, if you're not enforcing our law, what are we going to do? Now, there are really only two things Congress can do. Uh, thing number one is they can impeach Mayorkas. Um, you know, power of impeachment is in the House. They could say it's a misdemeanor for him to flagrantly violate uh, federal law, even at the order of the President of the United States. Uh, therefore, uh, that's a misdemeanor, meaning it's bad behavior, doesn't have to rise to a crime. Uh, that's, again, going back to the 1828 definition, Webster's 1828 Dictionary, uh, they can impeach. Of course, that's going to go nowhere. Even if they could get it done in the House, that's going nowhere when it hits the Senate. The other answer is, okay, we start refusing to fund the Department of Homeland Security. Or we start we refuse to fund certain programs within the Department of Homeland Security. And based on other statements by Mr. Getz, I'm sure there are programs in the Department of Homeland Security he would be more than willing to target for those things. But I doubt that's going to happen because, sure enough, it's, you know, the, he's going to be called all sorts of names for it. I don't know. Let's see. But you, you see where the... Um, the, the problems are the courts, even when a court says, listen, you haven't met the requirements for asylum, we order your deportation, there's nothing they can do as long as the executive branch refuses to follow the law. The only challenge to that is impeachment and the purse. Both start with the House of Representatives. Now, again, impeachment is a political football. Um, the the uh, uh, any I, any thought that that uh, impeachment is not politicized died in the last Congress, just absolutely dead. Um, nobody would believe it, even if if it were true. Uh, so that's a sticking point, which is why I come back to the oncoming train of tyranny. See, if the court comes to the right answer, but the executive refuses to enforce the law, what do we do? I have another question for you. See, in in, in a, what a year and a half or so. We're going to be choosing electors that are going to vote for somebody to be president of the United States, the person ultimately invested with the executive power, and the takes an oath uh, to fulfill his job, which includes to faithfully enforce the laws of the United States, or faithfully execute the laws of the United States, when you have a somebody under his command, somebody under his, his, his office that either is refusing to uh, enforce the law, or at least refusing to admit that in public, um, we need to pick better people to execute the laws. 
the, the role of present is not to be your best buddy, to hold your hand, to make you feel better, to give you goodies. It's to execute the laws of the United States. It's about time we start picking people that actually, oh, I don't know, execute the laws of the United States. Now, I'm sure there are people that disagree with me, and that's fine. I'm, I'm open to people disagreeing as long as it's based on actual well, facts and evidence and proof, not simply opinion. Now, one of the great things about America Out Loud is you can get different points of view all from the same site. It's one of the reasons why I go daily to AmericaOutloud.news to get news and information. I recommend you do it as well. But I'm going to ask you to take those, the stories, the articles, the podcasts, the videos you find important and share them. Because it's by sharing that information that you help to secure the blessings of liberty. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news, liberty and justice for all. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too. Crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Welcome back, Everyday Americans. You rejoin the Constitution study, and we're asking, is that ray of light we see a ray of hope? Or is it an oncoming train of tyranny? Now, I've talked already about uh, the Postal Service um, decision, uh, you know, the, the postal worker could not be forced to work on Sundays and how, yes, he got what he deserved, but it's based on such a, a towering house of cards that it, it, it's not truly safe, in my opinion. We also talked about um, so what's been going on with, with the Hunter Biden case and, you know, the judicial system and dealing with that. And we even talked a little bit about uh, um, how the 
the courts can decide, but it's still up to the executive branch to execute. That's his job. It's the executive branch. His job is to execute. And if they refuse to execute, no change at the judicial level would mean anything, actually. I've been focusing a lot on that light possibly being the train of judicial tyranny, but let's take a look at some other uh, scenarios that might uh, also be of, of serious concern. Um, th th there are a lot of people, including those in Congress, that are concerned about um, the taxpayers paying millions of dollars to arm the Infernal Revenue Service. And yes, I picked up that little idiom from a cartoon years ago, uh, but it's the idea that um, if the IRS is about collecting taxes, why does it need to be armed? I mean, don't we have enough law enforcement agencies at the federal level that could actually do the uh, the the law enforcement part of it and leave the IRS to do, well, I don't know, harass the American people about paying their taxes? Now, recently, Representative uh, Stephanie Bice sent a letter to uh, the commissioner of the IRS, and she stated, I write to you today to express my concern regarding the increased rate of weapon purchases by the Internal Revenue Service. While I recognize the Criminal Investigative Investigation Division has a law enforcement role, recent reports have indicated that the IRS has made substantial purchases of weaponry and tactical gear. As a civilian agency whose stated mission is to provide America's taxpayer top taxpayers top quality service by helping them understand and meet their tax responsibilities and enforce the law with integrity and fairness to all, the increasing militarization of the IRS is of growing concern. And I find that of growing concern to me as well. She went on to describe, she said, there's a, a watchdog organization, did a report noting that uh, recently the IRS spent $10 million to stockpile things like weapons, ammunition, and gear. Uh, they included data on the types of items that uh, are now in the possession of the IRS. Weapons, weapon systems, ammunition, explosive devices, armored vehicles, drones or UAVs, even chemical weapons such as tear gas and other quote-unquote calming agents. Now, when I put this together with another report I covered uh, the last couple of days dealing with the, the IRS saying, you know what, we're not going to, we're no longer going to send armed agents unannounced to people's doors. Um, what are they armed with? <laughs> Makes me wonder what they're armed with. But when the collection of taxes becomes something that needs UAVs and, and armored vehicles, there's something seriously wrong with, uh, with, with our priorities. Yes, I, I understand there's a need for a criminal division. Um, within the IRS, but that's outside the Department of Justice. That's in the Department of Treasury. Shouldn't those criminal prosecutions be handed over to justice to be dealt with rather than uh, having another law enforcement arm, another gun-wielding uh, uh, agency? Listen, I have nothing against guns, but I get nervous when the people with all the guns get government paychecks not uh, not private individuals. So, you know, I look at that going, are we, have, you know, we've milita militarized our police. We now appear to be militarizing our tax collectors. I don't see that coming to a good end. So, no, I, I don't want our, my, my tax, uh, my revenuers, my tax collectors being uh, trigger pullers. But you know what I do want to be trigger pullers? The Department of Defense. That should be their focus. 
the the, the people who, uh, as I heard one person describe it, uh, kill people and break things. Now, again, Department of Defense, has, they've got a lot of people. You've not only got those in the military, you have their dependents, those who are living on base, and you know there's a lot of, of needs for them, including, by the way, medical treatment. But here's an interesting twist. See, apparently the DOD has implemented a, a, an, a health policy that um, once a child turns 12 years old, they no longer need to have their parents involved. According to a report from the Federalist, apparently official policies are not easy to find. They're not publicly posted at the base clinic. So parents walk in to the, the base clinic and they're, they're kind of shocked to find out that, you know what? The doctors don't want the parents around when they're treating their adolescent children. Now, in this article, again, at thefederalist.com, uh, uh, one parent describes uh, uh, what happened to them. Uh, two years ago, my family made a military move overseas. At our very first well-child visit to the base clinic, my child's doctor, a complete stranger to us, as are most doctors in this transient lifestyle, said I would be required to leave the room at the next year's exam so she could ask my child more, quote-unquote, invasive questions now that she was an adolescent. The next year, I was surprised to learn via the TRICARE online portal that I was barred from accessing my child's online medical records from 12 years of age onward. Additionally, as I came to learn, my child was not allowed to have her own password or create her own account until she turned 18. When I asked the doctor for the reason why, she said it was above her pay grade. Above her pay grade. Here you have a doctor, but obviously under military orders, right? You're dealing with a military doctor, military orders saying at 12 years old, nobody except the doctor can, can know what's going on with the, with the child. That's it. I mean, the, the, the parent is not allowed in the room. The parent is not allowed to access the medical records. And the child is not allowed to access the medical records until they turn 18. Now, again, this doctor is following orders, which, again, in the military is pretty much expected. But you have to wonder, now the military is further is become a, um, a social engineering organization. A child of 12 years old is not a, an adult in the United States under U.S. law. And they recognize it because a child cannot access their own, create a password to access their own records until they turn 18. But now you have a military doctor asking invasive questions completely absent of the parent. The parent is not legally allowed in the room, according to this doctor. Personally, I would have taken the doc I would have take take the child out and um well then again, I don't know, because I'm not in the military. I'm not a military spouse. I don't know what I would have done. My um my first reaction would have been um, listen, hey, pervert, you're not allowed to talk to my child about invasive questions without me present. I am the moral standards for this child, not you, and not the Department of Defense. See, to me, this is just one more example of the, the government, uh, the federal government, claiming to be parent-in-chief, claiming to know best what's for the child and seeing the parent as an obstacle to their agenda. 
And if you think about it, the military is where the federal government would have the most control, right? This doctor is a military doctor. They 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 take orders. Um, they they have to you know if they're going to deny that order, they have to recognize that that order is unlawful somehow before they're allowed to deny it, right? Because they're not they're only required to follow lawful orders. But they're being told these are lawful orders, and it just makes me wonder how many how many parents of people who are willing, uh, how many how many parents that are in the military would be willing to submit their child to invasive questions, which you can pretty much guarantee are going to be sexualized questions by a stranger without the parent's consent, without the parent's involvement, denial of... How many trigger pullers are going to say, I don't want my child treated that way. I want to know what my child is being asked about. I want to be in control of what information my child, you know, that, that uh, uh, is being interrogated for my child. When they talk about invasive questions, they're talking about the military now potentially se further sexualizing our children. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a, as I understand it, a, a policy, a regulation that uh, simply magically popped into existence in the last couple of years. So under, these are official policies that have been growing and building for years. Are these policies based on actual law? Because then the Congress makes the rules and the regulations for the military. So my first question, I guess my question would have been to the doctor, uh, okay, where's the, show me the UCMJ. Show me the UCMJ where you have the authority to talk to my minor child without me being, to demand that I, to talk to my minor child without being present. You show me. And I think that's something we need to start asking. When these Timpot dictators claim the authority to do something, demand they show you where they have that authority. And if all they can show you is, well, you know, the, the DOD policy, no, the DOD can't create a policy. They cannot create a regulation that's not authorized by Congress. Congress sets the rules and regulations for the military, Article 1, Section 8. And they cannot set a rule for a military that violates the Constitution. And that's basically what's happening, because as I've described before, children and you know, minors are, in effect, the they are the they're the they're they're the wards of their parent. Their parent has effectively a form of property right over them. And again, I I know I I'm not I don't mean slavery, right? The term property is not often well understood here in in this day and age. Property is something you have, according to to uh, James Madison, something you have control over. So as a a parent to have control over the upgrading of their child, including medical decisions. How can a parent make medical decisions when, they don't, when they're denied information? The child can't give consent. They can't give consent to create a password. So it's the, par the parent that must give consent, but it's not informed consent because information is being hidden from the parent. If it's happening in the military, how long do you think before some bureaucratic weenie says, well, if you take Medicare, you must have these private invasive conversations with minors and you must not allow the parents to be present. Now, before I wrap up today, I've got actually a state issue to deal with. This one is California. 
Now, you know California is working hard to introduce a Marxist, perverted, sexualized agenda throughout all their, their education systems. Well, there's a school board in Riverside County that um, they rejected a social studies curriculum for grades one through five that uh, discussed the life and legacy of Harvey Milk. Uh, Harvey Milk is, they say famous, I say infamous, first openly gay official elected in California. Okay, I guess the, the school board said maybe five to six years, you know, five to ten years old is not the time to introduce a, a, a character simply because of their sexual preferences. Now, to me, okay, uh, I look at this as saying if that's the, the decision, if the parents in that school district, if the taxpayers in that school district decided this is a, okay, this is what we want, then um, that shouldn't be a problem, should it? Except it messes with the sexualization agenda that's running rampant in California and being driven in large part by Governor Gavin Newsom. See, good old Gavi there, he threatened a $1.5 million fine for that school district for not, for what he said, not adhering to a law that said that the school is required to teach students about LGBTQ historical figures. In other words, now, in, according to Gavin Newsom, in a, in a state, well, effectively in a statement, that, that it, he said that fortunately now students will receive the basic materials needed to learn. According to Gavin Newsom, learning about a, a sexualized homosexual leader is important for children, first graders through fifth graders. So I'm curious, does this, is Temecula Valley Unified School District, um, did the previous uh, uh, curriculum teach about Harvey Milk later? In other words, was Harvey Milk completely removed? Or was it the fact that this, by the way, they, they, this was an update to the social studies curriculum. The original curriculum did not include Harvey Milk, and it was fine in 2022. Now Gavin Newsom says it violates a 2011 law. Again, because what you have is you have in this case, state tyrants promoting a sexualized agenda. They want to sexualize our children. That is the, from what they do, that is their agenda. And if it takes a fine to do it, they'll do it. And therefore, the school district flopped. They changed their mind because they were not willing, I guess, to fight a $1.5 million fine instead of sexualize teaching children about sexual lifestyles you know identifying identifying a person based on their sexual preferences in elementary school i'm glad i don't live in california in fact there's a reason why i won't live in california while these communists are in charge now i brought these issues up today for a couple of reasons one is i know a lot of people who think it's all over you know Turn off the lights, everyone go home, it's all done. The United States is over. And I don't agree with that. I see these victories, these small victories, as the chance that maybe the embers of the uh, sacred fire of liberty are not dead here yet, that there still is a possibility. But I, ha I don't also want to look at it and say, see, we got a couple of good rulings, we're all done, pack your bags and go home. 
there's still a lot of work to do. There's still a lot of responsibility for the citizens of the United States when it comes to their representatives and when it comes to the government that they um, ordained and established, whether it be the federal government or our state governments. We have to keep doing the work. And because of that, I hope you'll come back and join us here at the Constitution Study every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time on America Out Loud Talk Radio, heard on the iHeartRadio Network. If you can't listen then, that's okay. Listen to the podcast. The episodes generally go to podcast a day or two after they're heard on the radio. You can find them in your favorite podcast app. But do me a favor. Subscribe to the show. Leave me ratings and reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the Constitution Study. Find all the links you need at the homepage of AmericaOutloud.news. But again, share them. See, it's by sharing this information that we all help to share the blessings of liberty. 